Nation Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the Combination Nail Salon and Grocery Store. Groceries through Instacart, delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. You're hanging out with some friends and putting back a few drinks. A few becomes a few too many. As the evening comes to an end and people start to head out, you think of calling for a ride. Nah, you live nearby. You can make it home, okay? It's no big deal. What are the odds you'll get pulled over anyway? And even so, what's the worst that could happen? Your insurance goes up? You lose your license? You lose your job? You total your car? You kill someone? Everyone knows about the risks of driving drunk. The results are tragic and often deadly. However, that still doesn't stop everyone from getting behind the wheel while under the influence. That's why police officers are out there right now looking for impaired drivers on our roads to save lives. So, if you think you're okay to drive after a few drinks, think again. Play it safe and plan ahead to get a ride. It only takes one mistake to change your life or someone else's forever. Drive sober or get pulled over. Pop quiz. What can you buy for $3.99? Not a latte, but for less than the cost of a cup of coffee, you can get all your favorite music ad-free. While other streaming services jack up their prices, Live One's membership is only $3.99 per month, and you can lock in that price for a full year. Join now to get the best deal in music with zero ads, unlimited skips, and maximum audio quality. Get the music you love at a price that fits into your budget with Live One Plus. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Before we begin, I want to remind you that I have another show called Somewhere Sinister. You can watch it on YouTube or listen to it wherever you listen to podcasts. More information is in the information below. Thanks. Missouri gets its name from the Missouri Native American tribe. The state has no official nickname, but it's unofficially called the Show Me State. The expression may have begun in 1899 when Congressman William Duncan Vandiver stated, I'm from Missouri and you've got to show me. St. Louis is nicknamed the Gateway to the West with its 630-foot or 190-meter gateway arch, standing as a monument to the westward expansion of the United States. Ray and Faye Copeland seem like your average couple living a simple life on their farm. As they got older, they hired labor to help them keep up with the chores, which didn't seem unusual. What was unusual was when their hired help began disappearing. This is Monsters. On August 20, 1989, the Nebraska Highway Patrol tips hotline got a call from a man saying he had been hired by a farmer in Mooresville, Missouri to buy cattle with a bad check. He told them what bank was used and then told the operator that he saw human remains buried on the farmer's land. He said he was terrified that he was going to be murdered. The operator tried to get more information out of him, but he hung up. Nebraska police contacted authorities in Livingston County, Missouri, and they began an investigation. They called the bank and an employee told them that they had several bounced checks for cattle sales. 
The most recent check was from an account that was owned by a man named Jack McCormick. Authorities did a background check and discovered that Jack was a transient with a criminal record, but they couldn't find him anywhere locally, so they put out an all-points bulletin and waited for him to be arrested somewhere else. They didn't have to wait long, though. Three weeks after the call was made, Jack was arrested in Salem, Oregon, and the Oregon authorities contacted Livingston County to report the arrest. An officer in Salem interviewed Jack and he repeated the story and admitted to being the person who made the call. Jack was extradited back to Missouri on the bounce check charges and when he was interviewed there, he said that he fled the area because he was afraid for his life. He told authorities exactly what happened leading up to his departure. Jack McCormick lived a stable life in Idaho once upon a time. When his wife died in the late 70s, he left that life behind and began living a transient lifestyle with alcohol as his only traveling companion. He had worked in Alaska all the way down to Florida and didn't even remember many of the days in between. At 57 years old, he had developed a level of street smarts that many of the other alcoholic drifters didn't have. He was a very intelligent man who still preferred the Wall Street Journal even though he was flat broke. He had good and bad periods in his life. Sometimes he would be near blackout drunk for days at a time, but others he would focus on something productive and manage to clean himself up and stay off the sauce. In mid-1989, Jack had been living at the Victory Mission in Springfield, Missouri and had managed to stay sober long enough to start helping run the place. It was there that Ray Copeland showed up, looking to hire some help for his farm. Despite Jack being older than the young men Ray was used to hiring, he could tell that Jack was an outgoing guy and offered him the job, but Jack turned him down for the first month or so. He was afraid of falling off the wagon if he left the mission, but soon, Ray was able to pique his interest. Ray told him that he needed help purchasing cattle because he was hard of hearing, and the other farmers knew that, and they would use that knowledge to bid against him to raise the price. He offered Jack $50 a day and free room and board for help purchasing cattle at local auctions. In late July, Jack finally agreed to the job and he left the mission to drive with Ray back to his yellow farmhouse in Mooresville, about a three and a half hour drive from Springfield. Once there, Jack was given a small bedroom to sleep in and was told by Ray's wife, Faye, that he would need to store his belongings under the bed because the closet was full. Jack said he later looked in the closet and it was full of men's clothing, but they were all different sizes and styles. He thought it was odd, but shrugged it off. The next morning, Ray drove Jack to the local post office and told him to get himself a post office box. Next, they went to the bank and used that address to set Jack up a checking account with an initial opening deposit of $200. This ultimately kept everything in Jack's name. At the time, when you opened a checking account, they would give you a book of what's called starter checks to use until your official checks came in the mail. These starter checks didn't have your name and address printed on them. When Jack got back in the truck, Ray asked him to sign one of them. His explanation was, in the event that something happened to both of them, Faye would be able to get the money back out of the bank. That afternoon, they went to the auction and purchased $2,000 worth of cattle paying with a check from Jack's new account, the one that only had $200 in it. For all you youngsters out there before people were paying with Bitcoin using a microchip implanted in their wrist, oh wait, we're not there yet. 
Before people were tapping their cards on a screen and having funds instantly taken out of their bank, people had to write checks when they wanted to purchase something with funds they had in the bank. You could use an ATM card to take money out of the bank or use a credit card to purchase something on credit, but there weren't debit cards in the late 80s. You would write a check and then the person you wrote the check to would put that in their bank and then their bank would send that check to your bank and then your bank would send the funds to their bank. It was a long process and the person receiving the check basically had to trust that you had the money in the bank. You could call someone's bank and ask if they had enough money to cover the check, but it wasn't common at the time. The time period between when a check was written and when the funds actually came out of your bank was called the float. Some people would use the float to commit another check fraud called check kiting. To do that, a person would have checking accounts at two different banks and would write a check from bank number one and deposit it in bank number two. They wouldn't have enough money in bank number one to cover the check, so they would wait a few days and then write a check from bank number two and deposit it into bank number one, essentially prolonging the float. Some people would play this game to make it until payday, and others would do it as an interest-free way of getting a loan for gambling purposes, intending to make the check good with their future winnings, which likely didn't happen. This was also a time period when they didn't hold a deposit before making it available. You're probably familiar with depositing a check in the bank and having them only let you use $100 until the check clears. This is most likely due to people check-kiting in the past when they wouldn't hold any of the funds after you deposited a check into your account. Many things were based on the honor system in the past, which has been ruined by scammers. Thanks a lot, scammers. Ray loaded up the cattle and quickly resold them, pocketing the proceeds. Ray took Jack to another auction where he began bidding on a group of cattle, but other farmers ended up outbidding him. This made both Ray and Faye angry, and Jack started having second thoughts about his employment. He told the Copelands that night that he wanted to quit. The following morning, Ray told Jack that there was a raccoon in the barn and he needed his help to get it. On their way out to the barn, Jack noticed a tractor parked nearby that had a small flatbed trailer hitched to it. On the trailer was a roll of black plastic and a shovel. Inside the barn, Ray gave Jack a stick and told him to scare the animal and he would stand behind him and shoot it when it ran out. Jack was not comfortable having Ray standing behind him with a rifle pointed in his direction. He kept glancing over his shoulder at Ray and soon his nerves got the better of him and he told Ray he was out of there. Jack told Ray that he could either give him a ride to town or he'd hitchhike and Ray agreed to give him a ride. They went to the bank so Jack could collect what was left in the account. It seemed that the bad check hadn't come in yet, so Jack intended to take it as payment for his wages. It seemed that the bad check hadn't come in yet, so Jack intended to take what was in the account as payment for his wages, plus a little extra for having to deal with Ray and Faye. Once he got the cash from the teller, he went out a side door and slipped quietly away from Ray Copeland. After stopping in a bar for a drink, Jack found himself at a small used car lot looking at an old Ford Pinto. Jack looked over the car, trying to act concerned at some of the rust and dings he found. He didn't really care. As long as the car ran, he was going to take it. Jack told the salesman that he'd take it for a test drive and if it ran okay, he'd give him $400 cash for it. The salesman tossed him the keys and Jack drove off the lot, headed for the highway. I said he was going to take it. I didn't say he was going to pay for it. 
Jack spent the next few days at his mother's house in Lebanon, Missouri, where he ditched the Pinto and borrowed one of her cars. From there, he headed to Nebraska, hoping to find a carnival company he had worked with, but was unsuccessful. It was there that he stopped to call the Nebraska Highway Patrol tip line before continuing west, making it to Oregon. He financed his trip by writing bad checks from the account he had opened in Mooresville. This is why, by the time Jack was arrested in Oregon, the bank had a long list of check fraud charges pending against him. Along with these bounced checks, the bank told authorities that there were more bounced checks from a number of other men, also from purchasing cattle. Bounced checks weren't a rare occurrence, but usually they were for smaller amounts. $10 for a tank of gas or a few bucks short of covering a check for groceries. These checks all had a clear pattern of having the account opened and strictly being used to purchase cattle before the account holder disappeared. When the cattle sellers were questioned, they all said the same thing. The purchases were all made by a person they weren't familiar with, but all the cattle were hauled away by the same person, Ray Copeland. Ray Copeland was born on December 30, 1914 in Oklahoma to Jess and Laney Copeland. The family frequently moved around, constantly looking for any work they could find in the midst of the Great Depression. They would find people with land they could use to farm in exchange for a small take in the revenue. Ray only attended school up to the fourth grade, then dropped out in order to work. He was known as a hard-working boy. He was large, growing to be six foot five inches, and had a frame that was built for labor. Though he wasn't afraid to put in a hard day's work, he also began finding ways of making extra money through less honest means. As a teenager, he stole two pigs that his parents had been raising on the piece of shared land they had found. He took the pigs to Eureka Springs, Arkansas and sold them while his parents were away for the day. He then began stealing his brother and his neighbor's WPA government checks from the mail and forging their signatures, pocketing the cash. Ray's siblings said their parents knew about most of his crimes, but did nothing to punish him, a privilege they admitted they never got from their parents. In 1936, when Ray was 22 years old, he was caught forging the checks and sentenced to a year in prison. Despite his conviction, his parents believed him when he said he was being framed. They continued to support him during his prison sentence and after he got released. Faye Wilson was born on August 4, 1921, in Harrison, Arkansas, to Rufus and Gladys Wilson. The couple had seven children who they raised in a small cabin with a dirt floor. Faye made it to the eighth grade before dropping out to work, but she had been working since she was ten years old. She did laundry, cleaned houses, and babysat. That was on top of the labor her father made all the kids do on the farm. Rufus was a very strict father who didn't allow dating and really only allowed the children to attend church and work. By the time Faye was 19, she had only met a few men that weren't members of her family. In 1940, when she met Ray at a doctor's office in Harrison, she was instantly smitten. The Wilson family was poorer than the Copeland family and Ray liked to embellish the amount of money he had, increasing his attractiveness to Faye. The couple were married that fall, and they had their first two children, both sons, in Harrison. In 1944, Ray moved the family to Fresno, California, and they had a daughter after the move. Then they moved back and forth between Arkansas and California multiple times, adding two more sons to the family during this time. It's unclear what Ray was looking for with these moves, but some people believe he was trying to evade arrest for stealing some horses. 
ultimately ending up back in Arkansas in his early 30s, Ray realized he could take advantage of the honor system used by cattle sellers to make easy money. He began buying cattle, using a bad check, and then selling the animals and keeping all the money. Performing this scam with his own bank account got him money initially, but it got him caught pretty quickly. At 33 years old, he was convicted and sentenced to a year in jail. During this time, Faye and the children lived with family and subsisted on welfare and donated food. When Ray was out of jail, he moved the family to a place called Rocky Comfort in southern Missouri. Here, he continued to make a living by ripping people off. It was a time when an employer would see a man with a family who wanted a job and they would trust that they were going to do the job. Ray would gain their trust and then steal from them. In 1951, Ray was arrested for stealing a calf from his employer and instead of jail time, the judge sentenced him to do work on his own farm. Seems like a conflict of interest, but whatever. Once he was done with his work release program, he moved the family again. The Copeland's children believed that they moved around so often because their father was trying to evade punishment for his crimes. They also said that he became more and more physically violent to them and their mother. They said the chores were never done to their father's satisfaction, which meant a physical punishment. That would involve fists, hammers, and metal cow kickers. One of his sons broke his wrist while helping gather hay, and Ray made him finish working before he allowed Faye to finally take him to the doctor. The children all left home as soon as they were able to. One son joined the U.S. Army, and their daughter married young just to get away from Ray. They eventually moved to northwest Missouri, and Ray stayed on the straight and narrow long enough for them to save enough money to buy a farm of their own. In 1967, they found a run-down home on 40 acres in Mooresville for $6,000. They put $500 down and agreed to payments of $40 a month. Here they spent many years, Ray working odd jobs and Faye working at a glove manufacturer to make the mortgage payment. They would grow vegetables and sometimes sell the extras. By 1972, the farm was paid off. Ray was always trying to perfect his check fraud game, and in the early 70s, he seemed to have come up with a way to get away with writing bad checks. He would pick up a drifter or a hitchhiker and bring them with him to the auction. The two would sit apart from each other, but Ray would signal to the other man when he wanted him to bid. When they went to pay for the cattle, Ray had the man he brought pay with one of his checks and forge his signature. The check would then bounce, and when the bank came after Ray, he would show them the check was forged, which it was. The bank wasn't able to press charges against Ray, and the transients he had used in the scam would be gone. At the time, it was believed that they had just moved on to a different place, but now, many people believe that Ray was killing his accomplices. Ray was able to keep up on his scam for quite a while, along with taking out several loans against his farm. By the mid-80s, Ray was past due on about $25,000 worth of small loans and the bank was threatening to take his property. They went to a lawyer to discuss setting up a structured repayment plan, but even with that set up, Ray had no intention of digging himself out of debt with honest work. He was now in his 70s and he couldn't do enough work to make the payments. He finally adjusted his favorite check scam so he'd be able to do it without being caught. Ray hated drifters and homeless people. He believed that they had destroyed their own lives and were thus worth less than he was. 
The world didn't need them, so instead of trying to buy cattle with his own checks, he would find one of these down-on-their-luck transients, have them open their own checking account, and have them purchase the cattle. After a few bounced checks, they would disappear. They were transients. They did that. Nobody would miss them. We'll be right back. Joshua is a Simply Safe customer from Indiana. A few months ago, he fell asleep with pizza rolls still in the oven. This could have been disastrous with thousands of dollars in damage to his kitchen and home, or worse. Luckily, Joshua has a comprehensive Simply Safe system, equipped with everything to prevent break ins and smoke detectors to sniff out fires. He startled awake to the sound of a 95 decibel alarm from his Simply Safe base station. Seconds later, he got a call from Simply Safe professional monitoring, checking to make sure that everything was okay. The pizza rolls didn't make it, but Josh did. He believes Simply Safe probably saved his life that night. I use Simply Safe because it protects my whole home and my office around the clock 24-7, and when I'm away, I can keep track of both places right on my smartphone. You can customize the perfect system for your home in just a few minutes at simplysafe.com forward slash thisismonsters. Go today and claim a free indoor security camera plus 20% off with interactive monitoring. Go to simplysafe.com forward slash thisismonsters. Dennis Murphy grew up in Illinois, and after graduating high school, he started going to college but didn't last long. He had a problem with alcohol, and it led to a spotty attendance record at his jobs. It also led to fights with co-workers and strangers in taverns. Dennis eventually began drifting around, working odd jobs at farms, but wound up living with his grandmother somewhere in Bloomington, Illinois. At some point, Ray approached Dennis and offered him a job helping him purchase cattle. The offer was too good to pass up, and Dennis hopped in Ray's truck and went with him back to Mooresville. Part of the deal was that Dennis wasn't allowed to contact his family. Ray claimed there was too much work and didn't want distractions. He was also not allowed to use their phone number or address. This may have helped explain the need for a P.O. box, along with making sure the victims weren't well-connected to their property. The same day they returned, Ray took Dennis to a small town nearby where Dennis opened a P.O. box. Then he walked over to the nearby bank and opened a checking account. When he returned to the truck, Ray had him sign one of the blank checks, so in the event something happened to them, Faye could get the money back out of the bank. Sound familiar? In October of 1986, Ray and Dennis went to a cattle auction where Dennis purchased 13 head of cattle for $2,784. He paid with a check from his new checking account. Nobody knows for sure, but Ray likely told Dennis that he would deposit money into the account to cover the check before it got to the bank, something he had no intention of doing. A week later, they went to two more auctions, purchasing 12 head of cattle for $4,116 at the first one, and then buying a group of 23 cattle for $6,832 at the second one. Ray would sell the cattle within a few days and pocket all of the money. By the time the second and third checks were written, the first check had already bounced and Ray knew that the lifespan of the scam was over. Ray had taken on some work at a nearby farm belonging to Neil Bryan, and while Dennis was working on that farm on October 15th, Ray came up behind him with a 1950 Marlin 22 caliber lever-action rifle and shot him in the back of the head. He stripped off all of Dennis's jewelry and his identification, but missed the belt buckle he was wearing that had Dennis engraved on it. Then he wrapped him in a sheet of black plastic and wrapped a chain around his waist, which was also connected to a concrete cinder block. 
On the same property was a 40-foot or 12-meter deep well with a large concrete lid. Ray must have used a tractor to open the lid, then he pushed Dennis's body into the well and replaced the lid. Though Ray was sure that nobody would ever find Dennis's body, he wasn't surprised when somebody came looking for him. Livingston County Sheriff's Deputy Gary Calvert was the one who caught the check fraud case against Dennis Murphy. Witnesses from the auction said that Dennis was with Ray Copeland, so Deputy Calvert went out to his farm and asked him a few questions. When he asked Ray if he knew a man named Dennis Murphy, the deputy was surprised when he said yes. Ray told him that Dennis had done some work for him, and when Deputy Calvert told Ray about the bad checks, Ray told him that Dennis had written him a bad check as well. Then he pulled out a check, signed by Dennis, and said that it had bounced. This is why Ray wanted a blank signed check from his victims. He could fill it in and claim that they had also written him a bad check to throw off suspicion. Ray was just another person who fell victim to this transient fraudster. Ray wished the deputy good luck and that was it. Ray was off the hook. The day after Ray had dumped Dennis's body into the well, he and Faye both headed back to Bloomington, Illinois to find themselves another employee. And by employee, I mean victim. They would find that in Wayne Warner, who was living in a mission in the area. Wayne Warner was a Vietnam veteran who had turned to drinking to help cope with the trauma he experienced during the war. He bounced back and forth between drunk and sober, and when he heard Ray's offer, he thought a move out to the country would be good for him, removing him from the temptations he was used to. Also, the offer of $50 a day was pretty good for 1986. He wanted to marry his girlfriend and hoped that this would be his ticket to cleaning up his act and making a better life for himself. Ray had Wayne go through the same process of opening a post office box and then using it to open a checking account. Then they spent a week going on various cattle auctions where they spent just over $6,000 in total before the check started bouncing. On November 19th, Ray took Wayne to a property owned by Joe Adams, telling him he needed to do some work in the hay barn. While Wayne was working, Ray shot him in the back of the head with the same 22 caliber rifle. This time, Ray stayed in the hay barn and wrapped Wayne's body in black plastic. Then he lifted the wooden planks that made up the barn floor and shoved his body underneath. He put the boards back and knew that soon the barn would be filled with thousands of bales of hay covering the body for quite some time. After Wayne's murder, there's a two-year gap in victims and it's not known if Ray paused his murder or if the victims just weren't found. There were bounced checks written by people that authorities were never able to track down. It's more likely than not that the Copelands had more victims than those that they were convicted of and the bodies were just never found. Ray disposed of bodies in various locations, so it's very possible that one or more locations were never uncovered. Ray had also picked up other men who didn't work out and he took them back to where he had picked them up. Most of them turned out to have not wanted to take part in the whole checking account process. They had a bad feeling about it, and they weren't interested, so Ray drove them back to their respective homes. A few of them simply turned out to just not be good at buying cattle, so Ray abandoned his plan and returned them as well. One man caught Ray in a lie, though. Luther Borner was a married man who was working at a mission in Joplin, Missouri, when Ray came in looking for workers, but he introduced himself as Mr. Jones. Luther jumped at the job offer and soon he was on his way to Mooresville, where he would be taken to a nearby town to open a P.O. box and a checking account, something he was already starting to question. 
Once back at the Copeland farm, Luther saw some mail sitting on a table, and it was all addressed to Ray Copeland. Luther was not a small man, and he had quite a temper, so he immediately confronted Ray. Ray tried to explain, but Luther wasn't having it. He told Ray to take him back to Joplin immediately, and Ray did. All it would have taken is for Ray to use his real name, and Luther would have likely been another victim. After two years of unknown activity, Ray picked up his next victim in the fall of 1988. Jimmy Harvey was 27 years old and suffered from epilepsy caused by a motorcycle accident a few years prior. He had a spotty employment history and had recently completed truck driving school but was having trouble landing a job in the field. He spent much of his time hanging out at the Victory Mission in Springfield. There, Ray approached him with an offer to help purchase cattle for $50 a day plus room and board, and like the others, Jimmy was all in. After the P.O. box and the checking account were opened, Jimmy ended up purchasing cattle, but only spent a total of about $1,200. On October 25th, Ray took Jimmy to the Neil Bryan barn to do some chores where he shot him in the back of the head. This time, Ray wrapped Jimmy's body in black plastic and dug a shallow grave in the center of the barn. There, he buried Jimmy. It seemed as though Ray was getting more secure in his body-hiding abilities because he was gradually doing less and less work to try to make sure they were well hidden. John Freeman was a 27-year-old man who had struggled since he was young. His father had died in Vietnam and his family was torn apart ever since. He turned to alcohol and though he had a pretty continuous work record, he would always end up blowing up at his boss and getting fired. He was also at the Victory Mission when Ray offered him a job and John accepted. He too went through the process of opening a P.O. box and a checking account and ended up writing about $1,400 worth of bad checks while buying cattle. On December 8th, when the checks began to bounce, Ray brought him out to the Neil Bryan barn where he shot him in the back of the head and buried him next to Jimmy. It wasn't until May of 1989 that Ray would pick up his next known victim. Paul Jason Coward, who went by PJ, was a 20-year-old drifter, but his mother said it was part of his nature. His great-grandparents were gypsies who traveled across Central Europe. PJ had dropped out of school in the 11th grade and just began wandering. When PJ would come through Arkansas, his mother would take him in and help him out. She would buy him new shoes and clothes and repair any of his existing clothes. She also had a habit of sewing labels into his clothes. The last time he was at his mother's house was for Thanksgiving of 1988, and it was then that she added labels with the initials PJC on his clothes. At the end of April of 1989, PJ called his mother from Springfield, Missouri to tell her about the new job he'd just got. He told her that he would be making $400 a week. On May 3rd or 4th, Ray shot PJ in the back of the head while he was asleep in the bedroom right next to where he and Faye slept. Ray wrapped the body in plastic and loaded it into his truck. He took it out to the Neil Bryan barn and buried it with the others. Either Ray took a few months off or there were other unknown victims, but it wasn't until July that Ray would meet and hire Jack McCormick at the Victory Mission. Based on Jack's statement that he saw human remains on the Copeland property and the witness statements about seeing Ray with the various missing men, police obtained a search warrant. On October 9, 1989, police arrived at the Copeland farm to search for bodies. Faye was home, but she told the officers that Ray was having breakfast at a restaurant in town. Inside her purse, authorities found a signed check belonging to Jack McCormick, and they placed her under arrest. 
Ray was taken into custody at the restaurant and taken to the station for questioning. Ray was cooperative and told the investigator that Jack was staying at the house and that he did ask Jack to help him with a raccoon, but he never pointed the rifle at him and was confused how he could have thought that. When Faye was questioned, she denied any knowledge of a check scam or the whereabouts of any of the missing men. Meanwhile, the Copeland property was being scoured for any human remains. They had over three dozen deputies and highway patrol officers searching every corner of the property. They searched with cadaver dogs and still turned up no human remains. They did, however, find bank records and livestock records that supported the fraud case. They also found the twenty-two caliber rifle that Jack had claimed Ray pointed at him. Then, in an empty Polaroid case, they found a folded-up piece of paper with a list of men's names. Some of the men's names had the word left or back written next to them, and others had an X written next to them. Gary Misko, left, and then something illegible. The Big Fat Man, back. Jim Harvey, X. Jim Greer, back. Wayne Freeman, X. John Freeman's middle name was Wayne. Tommy Brandon, back. Jack Holliday, back. Robert Roof, back. Thomas Parks, X. Paul Cowart, X. Many of the names matched the names of the people who had written bad checks for cattle. Investigators were able to track down the people on the list that had the word back or left next to their names, and all of them were alive. They told investigators that they had been to the Copeland house, but didn't want to be involved in the scam and were all taken back to where they were from. This may be why it said back next to their names. The first person may have left on their own, which is why it said left. All of the people with X's by their names were nowhere to be found. It was determined that Faye had written the list because 1. It matched her handwriting, and 2. Ray was illiterate. He couldn't read or write. This is another reason that authorities believed Ray was involved in the crimes. There was a lot of paperwork involved, and she would have been the person that needed to deal with it. Then investigators went into the closet in the spare bedroom and found it full of clothing that clearly belonged to other people. Some of the clothing had name tags sewn in with the initials PJC. Despite finding all this other evidence, they still didn't find any human remains, and when they asked Jack to point out exactly where he saw them, he admitted that he had lied about that detail. He had never seen any human remains on the Copeland's property, but he was sure that they had killed people. Investigators were disappointed, but now that the community knew what was going on, they began calling in tips about places that they had seen Ray working. It turned out that many of the people in town didn't like Ray too much and had no problem turning on him. When it was suggested that authorities search Neil Ryan's property, they did, and when they finally got to the barn, they noticed that the soil inside looked like it had been recently disturbed. They used the metal rods to probe the dirt for anything buried under the surface, and one investigator found a boot. That boot was connected to a body wrapped in black plastic. After they excavated that body, they kept digging and found two more bodies. Those would be the bodies of Jimmy Harvey, John Freeman, and Paul Cowart. Bullet fragments from all three bodies matched bullets fired from Ray's twenty-two caliber rifle. Ray and Faye were then charged with three counts of murder, and Ray was interviewed again. 
He still denied any knowledge of the bodies, but then said it must have been three men that he saw at a restaurant. He claimed that he overheard three men talking about how they had buried a body under some hay in Joe Adams' barn, and they had also dumped a body in a well on the same property. He also said that they'd used a chain to connect the body in the well to a cinder block. So, you're sitting at a restaurant, and there are three guys who just happen to be blabbing about killing two men and dumping their bodies, in specific detail as to exactly where they put them, that they tied a cinder block to one of them, and on exactly which property it was. No, that didn't happen. Authorities went to Joe Adams' property and removed all of the hay from the barn, and underneath they found the body of Wayne Warner, wrapped in black plastic. Then they opened the well and saw two boots sticking up out of the water. When they pulled the body up, it was identified as Dennis Murphy. The bullets that were recovered from the bodies also matched Ray's rifle. How did those three random guys from the restaurant get your rifle, use it, and then put it back, Ray? I'm curious. Ray and Faye had two more murder charges added to their indictments. The prosecutor tried to offer Faye a deal to assist them, but she refused to take it. Both Ray and Faye went to trial separately, and Faye's happened first. Her defense argued that she was the victim of battered woman syndrome, also called battered spouse syndrome, which is probably true. She was physically and mentally abused by her husband for most of her life. She likely spent most of her life living in denial about what was going on with Ray, and probably went along with things out of fear of being killed herself. That's the very definition of battered spouse syndrome. The jury didn't buy it, which isn't entirely surprising during this time, as the syndrome hadn't been widely understood by then. She was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to death. When Ray learned of the verdict, he showed no concern. Ray didn't fare any better at his trial, and he shouldn't have. He's the one that pulled the trigger all five times, and there was a staggering amount of evidence against him. Jack McCormick testified against him, all the banking records, the clothing, the ballistics report. It took the jury a very short amount of time to find him guilty on five counts of first-degree murder. He was also sentenced to death. They are the oldest known serial killers in the United States. Investigators worked out how much they made from the deaths of those five men, and it ended up being about $31,000. Ray Copeland had a stroke and died on October 19, 1993. He was 78 years old. After Ray's death, Faye finally began to admit the abuse she suffered at the hands of her husband. On August 6, 1999, Faye's death sentence was commuted to life in prison. In 2002, she suffered a stroke and was partially paralyzed. She was sent to a nursing home where she died on December 23, 2003. She was 83 years old. We will never know exactly how involved she was in the murders or the check fraud. Ray Copeland didn't like people who were down on their luck because he felt they were beneath him, yet he used them in order to steal money from people. So who was worse? The homeless man who was struggling with alcohol or the monster who was killing people so he wouldn't get caught stealing? The answer is pretty obvious. If you're the victim of domestic abuse, please reach out to someone for help. Please talk to your local battered women's shelter or call the National Domestic Abuse Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. Or you can go to thehotline.org to chat with someone online.
The great thing about this website is that, at any time, hitting the escape key twice will take you to a Google search page. That way, if your abuser is nearby, you won't get caught looking for help. If you're having feelings of harming yourself or someone else, or even just need someone to talk to, please contact your local mental health facility, call 911, or call Mental Health America, who operate the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. They're available 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, and will talk to you about any mental health issue you might be facing. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast. You can subscribe or follow the show to ensure you don't miss an episode, and you can leave us a rating on whatever podcast app you use. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by checking out our merchandise at Teespring. You can also discuss the channel and the episodes on our subreddit, r forward slash thisismonsters. You can find more ways to support our show and how to find us on social media by visiting thisismonsters.com. Thanks again, and be safe. Stream the biggest movies and TV shows for free on Pluto TV. Watch movies like Titanic and G.I. Joe The Rise of Cobra, plus TV shows like CSI and Star Trek The Next Generation. Starting this month, check out the 24-7 Stargate channel exclusively on Pluto TV, plus hundreds of channels and thousands of movies and TV shows absolutely free. Download the free Pluto TV app on your favorite streaming device and start watching today. Did you know that driving high is considered driving under the influence? That's right. Driving under the influence of marijuana is against the law in every state, even in states where marijuana is legal. That means driving high could get you a DUI. And if you think law enforcement officers can't tell when you're driving high, you're wrong. Your friends can tell. Your coworkers can tell. Even your parents can tell. Everyone can tell. So, what makes you think that law enforcement officers don't know when you're driving high? Driving under the influence of marijuana can slow your response time and change how you perceive time and speed. So, even if you think you're fine to drive when you're high, you're not. Because the bottom line is, if you feel different, you drive different. And driving high is driving under the influence. So remember, drive high, get a DUI. Paid for by NHTSA. Life's full of things we can't depend on. Like the Irish weather, predictably unpredictable. When you're cutting it fine, but the tractor in front is out for the day. No winner of this week's you-know-what. So much for Lucky 7. But some things you can depend on. Like in home heating. Emo, Jones Oil and Campus Oil are now Certa, Delivering the same warmth to your home now and into the future. For home heating you can depend on, see CertaIreland.ie. This Christmas, feel joy, gift joy, and send them joy with the perfect gift at Arnott's. Explore an endless array of gifting that will bring joy to everyone on your list. Shop Irish at the Christmas market, support emerging new businesses with Pitch 22, or find something extra special from one of our world-class brands. Shop in-store and online at arnott's.ie. It's flu season, and children are twice as likely as adults to catch the flu which can sometimes cause serious illness. That's why all children aged 2 to 17 can get their free nasal spray flu vaccine, a safe and effective way to protect them and the rest of your family too. So make an appointment with your GP or pharmacist. Visit hsc.ie forward slash flu for more information from the HSC.